Well, today is our last study in the book of Jonah, and uh, our boy Jonah here has been on quite the ride. Uh, he, he started this whole story by running away from God when God called him to go to Nineveh with his message, but God pursued him. He pursued him with a storm and pursued him with a fish, and, and inside that fish, he had what seemed like a change of heart. And, and then afterwards, he reluctantly obeyed. He went into Nineveh. He preached the message of doom, and the city turned. This city that was formerly all populated by enemies of God, they turned and they received mercy from God. Those rebellious and wicked Ninevites received God's grace. But that whole thing was evil to Jonah. It says it burned him up inside. And so again, here's how this story ends. We'll, we'll read chapter 4 again today, starting in verse 1. Nineveh has been pardoned. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Then we go to the next chapter, and there isn't one. It just stops right there. This is where the story ends, which is just a strange ending to this book. It's like a movie with a cliffhanger, except there's no sequel. And we never hear from Jonah again in the Bible. We never really find out what happened to him. We don't know if he finally and fully repented and turned from his anger and his temper tantrum to realize all the errors of his ways. And we don't know if he he decided he would just sulk in the hot sun and spend the rest of his life bitter against God for how God had directed history and blessed his enemies when they didn't deserve it. And so we don't know if he finally melted under God's grace and rejoiced in God's mercy or if he finally got his death wish granted and was able to opt out of the world that God was directing that didn't line up with the world that Jonah wanted. We have no idea what he did. And so we're left hanging here, which seems like a cruddy story because there's no ending, there's no resolution. We don't know what happens to Jonah. But this is the word of God. And every word is breathed out for our good. And the real genius of this story is the ending. The lack of resolution for Jonah tells us something important, and it invites us to something important. I mean, first of all, it tells us that the real protagonist, the real hero of this story, isn't Jonah. Apparently, it wasn't important to God to tell us the end of where Jonah's life went, because this story wasn't a story that was all about Jonah. It was a story that first and foremost was all about God. 
This is a story that was written not to tell us what Jonah was like or what Jonah's life went like. This is a story that was written to tell us what God is like. And this story does it perfectly. In fact, look at verses 1 and 2 again. So they're pardoned, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you're a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So the point of this story is that God is gracious and God is merciful and God is slow to anger. And this is big because sometimes our view of God is that he's quick to anger and slow to mercy. We think that God has a a very short temper, that God has his judgment on a hair trigger and God is just up there eager to do some smiting as soon as he can. And, and if he's going to bless us, it's only because we twisted his arm and got him to finally show mercy because what he really wants to do is be angry. And every once in a while, he does something good to bless us. But this story shows us that that's not at all what God is like. He's certainly holy. He's certainly sovereign over everything. He rules over the storms and over the sea creatures He hates sin, he punishes sin, he disciplines, he is the God of the storm, he is a holy God, he is a good judge, but it's his mercy that's on the hair trigger. He's slow to anger, quick to mercy, slow to punish, quick to bless, he's patient, he's kind, he's not carrying around his paddle looking for an opportunity to smite, he's carrying around his grace and mercy looking for an opportunity to pour it out. He's not a Scrooge, he's not a snap case, but he's a generous, loving father. He's a God who relents from disaster, but he never relents from a promise that he makes. In fact, this story goes almost as far as to say that God will change his mind about the judgment that he's planning. Not quite that far. But back in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, it said, when God saw what they did, he saw that the city of Nineveh had repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The King James Version there says that God repented of the disaster that he had planned, which is weird for God, because there are a number of passages all throughout the Bible that say that God does not change his mind. I mean, one is Numbers twenty three nineteen, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. So we have God who's a God who doesn't change his mind, but it almost sounds like it says that he changed his mind here in Jonah chapter 3. Now, as as human beings, we change our minds, but we change our minds when we get some new information. You were planning on going to the beach today, but then you found out that it was going to rain, so you changed your mind and went to the movies. New information, and you do a new thing. You were engaged to somebody, and, and you thought that was the person you wanted to marry, but then you get some new information. They like country music, and you wisely, you change your mind, and you run, you you get new information, and therefore you change your mind, but God doesn't get new info. Like, he knows everything. He sees everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He sees the past, present, and the future. There's nothing that's hidden from him. Isaiah 46, verse 9 says, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. 
And Jesus says that even the hairs of our head are numbered. He says that if a bird falls to the earth and dies, it's only because that happened under the, the rule and the reign and, and in the full sight of our Heavenly Father. Nothing is a surprise to him. God always knows how the story will go. So it's not like God sent Jonah into Nineveh and then God sat by with a bowl of popcorn just kind of watching in suspense, wondering how they're going to respond. God's a God who's never in suspense. He's never surprised. He's probably not a lot of fun to watch a movie with because he knows where this is going. Like there, there's, there's not that moment. Like, oh, I didn't see that coming. He sees it all coming. He knows what's going on. So how is it that God changes his mind? I mean, there must be some way that he can relent, but it can't be the same way we do because God never gets any new information. Well, what God can do is he can give a warning. He can give a threat um, and use that threat as his tool to cause us to do something other than we were doing. And so, so, for example, like in the book of Proverbs, you see like the father walking with his son uh, and they walk by a field and the field is overgrown um, and there's clearly this lazy guy who isn't taking care of the field that he has and the father looks at him and says, look at that, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to the rest, folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you. If you are lazy like that guy's lazy, then your field won't produce either. And the father uses that threat, he uses that warning as the tool that he uses so that his son grows up not lazy. Uh, same way, if you tell your kid, uh, here's your BB gun, you'll shoot your eye out, that threat, that warning, is the tool that's used to keep them from shooting their eye out. And so if God says to Nineveh, if you continue on this path, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, that threat, that warning, is the tool that God uses to see to it that they won't be destroyed. And so God can say, you are on path A, and path A is the path toward judgment. Path B over here is the path toward mercy. And if you'll repent and get on path B, then there will be mercy. If you stay on path A, there will be judgment. God doesn't change his mind about that at all. But from a human perspective, when someone repents and goes off of the path of judgment and, and onto the path that God says is the path of mercy, it really is the path of mercy. And God can kind of, in communicating to us in our way, coming down to our level, he can say, I'll change my mind, even though we know he doesn't ever get new information. And, and all that God does is what God planned all along. So my brain just exploded. Like, we don't, okay, he's this big God who's over everything. We don't fully understand it. We don't fully get it. But this is the key, and this is a big deal in this story. When God is said to change his mind... He changes his mind about judgment, but you never see him changing his mind about a blessing. You'll see him relent from disaster, but he never relents from a promise. He's never a God who says, I made this promise to bless you, but I changed my mind back to smiting. Like he, he, that's not the direction he's ever said to change his mind. Um, he, he always gravitates more toward blessing, more toward love. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He reluctantly judges. He eagerly pardons. And it's because Jonah says that he is the God of steadfast love. And this word for steadfast love here in the Hebrew is the word hesed. And if you were with us in our Ruth series, we, we talked about that word this past Advent. It's, it's a word that is sometimes translated steadfast love or loving kindness. It's covenant love, the kind of love that God pledged to his people. Paul Miller calls it one-way love, love without an exit strategy. He says, when you love with said love, you bind yourself to the object of your love. 
Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. So God is a God of faithful, steadfast, loyal, for better, for worse, rugged love for his people. It's the kind of love that you pledge to one another or that you should be pledging to one another when you get married. This is a for better or for worse kind of love. And notice the reason that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. Because he knew that God was so abounding in that covenant love that he would even give his love to his enemies in Nineveh if they would turn to him. It's almost like Jonah is accusing God here of being promiscuous with his love. Like, you are way too generous with that. You are way too merciful. You're pledging your covenant to all kinds of people from all nations. It's fine when you're giving them to the Israelites, but but in Jonah's mind, for God to pledge his love to the inferior race in Nineveh, for God to pledge his love to the inferior people, the inferior religion, for, for God to pledge his love like that to his enemies, that was totally appalling to Jonah. But throughout this story, you see God abounding in love. He's being lovingly faithful to Jonah, lovingly faithful to the the sailors, lovingly faithful to the Ninevites, even faithful and loving to their cattle. This is a God who is abounding in love, just eager to throw his love all over the place. And the book of Jonah isn't a book about Jonah. It's a book about how God pursues in his love. Even in a storm, even in a warning, even for his worst enemies, He is a God of love, and that point is made clearly and fully by this story. God is relentlessly good, patiently calling even his worst enemies to turn from their selfishness, to turn from their self-destruction, to turn from their rebellion, and find in him incredible, steadfast love. And so God leaves Jonah with a question in verse 10. He says, shouldn't I do that? Should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So them not knowing their right hand from their left, some people say that that means that they were like toddlers or younger, so that there were 120,000 kids and maybe millions of people in this city. Uh, Some people say that they just had this view of the, the Ninevites as ignorant barbarians that don't even know their right hand from their left. But God's question is, shouldn't I pardon them? Shouldn't I show mercy? Shouldn't I have pity on the city? Am I not good in this? And if this is true about me, if this is true that God is a God of steadfast love who loves to pardon, loves to bless, then Jonah, won't you embrace me and submit to me? He's calling him to embrace the fact that The relentless love of God is not based on the resume of the receiver, but on the gracious character of the giver. So he's saying, Jonah, will you believe that seemingly moral people like you, who know their Bibles, who know the law of God, who've always been taught this, they need the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God as much as those really immoral Ninevites do? He says, Jonah, look what I just took you through. You thought you were okay, you were self-righteous, you were a good prophet, you were a good guy in Israel, so I gave you a hard command that you couldn't obey. And in your rebellion against that command, you exposed what's what's on the inside, that you're just as rebellious as those Ninevites are. You hate me as much as they hate me. When, When push comes to shove, you'll disobey my command. And so I showed you your sinfulness, your brokenness. I showed you your need of grace. And then from the the ocean, when you were sinking down, crying for a rescue, I rescued you and gave you grace and mercy. So shouldn't I do the same thing for that city? 
So Jonah's faced with this choice to either embrace that love of God or continue to run away from it. And we don't know what choice he made, so really we are faced with this same choice. He's faced with the choice of do I repent and renounce my selfishness, my desire to reign? Do I renounce my belief that God got the whole thing wrong and that I could have done better? Do I renounce my belief that God should punish my enemies but pardon me? Or do I sulk, continue out in the hot sun, continue running from God's plan, and deprive myself of all the joy that would be mine if I had close communion with God? And so because this story doesn't answer for us what Jonah did, it's like God looks at us when he tells this story and he says, given the same choice, what will you do? Will you embrace grace or will you cling to self-righteousness? Thinking that you deserve more, you deserve better, and then resenting and envying all the mercies that God gives you to your enemies. If you could actually turn over to Luke 15. Um, We're going to look now at the New Testament version of the story of Jonah. A story that Jesus told and one that we've certainly walked through here before. But it's a story that, that ends like Jonah ends, with no resolution and with a big question left for us to answer about what we'll do with this God of grace and mercy. And it's the famous story of the prodigal son. Uh, and, and just to set it up, in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we see Jesus doing in the New Testament what God was doing with Nineveh in the Old Testament. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus, as God among us, is pursuing the worst people in the world with his love. He's pursuing the tax collectors who are traitors and sellouts and crooks. He's pursuing the prostitutes and the moral Jewish religious people, the clean-cut, well-liked religious types. The Pharisees are looking at that and saying, what is wrong with him? He's receiving tax collectors and eating with them. He's hanging out with sinners. He's a friend of glutton and drunkards. They always pointed fingers at Jesus because he was drawing near to the worst people in the world to offer his grace and love, just like he did way back in Nineveh. So Jesus answers that question by telling them a few stories about what he's doing. One of them we looked at last week where Jesus says, I'm like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and I lose one. So I keep the 99 in the pen and I go after the one and when I find it, I throw it over my shoulder and I rejoice because I found my sheep. And then he tells another story of a woman who lost a coin, a valuable coin, and, and sweeps the whole house looking for it and she's panicked, but then she finally finds it. And when she finds it, she throws a party and invites all of her friends over because her coin that was lost is found again. And then he tells this story of the prodigal son. So verse 11, it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me this share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father... And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran 
and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So this younger brother, the prodigal, he wanted to get away from his dad. So he got his inheritance and he rebelled with it. He took the wealth and he spent it on basically beer and lotto tickets and women. And what was probably even worse than that in some of the people's minds is he spent it among the Gentiles. This money that was supposed to stay within the Jewish community, stay connected to the family to do good there, he went and did bad with it and he did bad with it out among the Gentiles. He took his dad's hard-earned money and he squandered it And he would have been a totally shameful son at this point. He lived like his father didn't exist at all. Like his father had never taught him right and wrong. He just did his own thing, pushing his father out of his mind. He was really a lot like the Ninevites before Jonah got there. They were doing their own thing, living with another God altogether, living for every pleasure they could imagine, not denying themselves any pleasure at all. But then this son came to an end of himself. After a while, he ran out of cash. He, he saw his brokenness and his poverty. He's looking over and, and seeing that the food that the pigs are eating, that looks really good. And he says, what have I done? What, what a mess I've made of things. So he starts this humble return. And he goes back, rightly expecting his dad to be furious. And he's got this speech in his head where he's going to tell his dad that he'll be his slave. He's going to be lucky to be accepted back at all. So maybe if he humbles himself enough, who knows, perhaps, maybe his dad will forgive him. Maybe his dad will show mercy. So he humbles himself. He turns from his sin. He returns with just a little bit of hope, but no demands at all. He repents. He looks a lot like the Ninevites did back in Jonah chapter 3. And the king of Nineveh issued this decree, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So in Nineveh, there was a humble turning, just like there's a humble turning in this prodigal son. So he starts to walk down the hill toward the house, Dad's sitting at the window, probably praying for his son, and he sees him coming over the the hill. And this father loves his son with a steadfast love. He's been praying for him to return. So he gets up from the table and he runs to his son. Now, in their culture, grown men did not run. I think we should bring that back. Um, (laughs) Just just done. After 30, no more. but it wasn't that they didn't like the workout. It's that it was a shameful thing. Um, for, for a man to run in their culture, he would have to take the tunic that he was wearing and hike it up, exposing his old man legs. And then he would have to, to that was the way that he could run. So for an old guy to run, everyone was going, ah, no, that, no, weird. Like you don't, it's like when you see that guy with the Speedo at the beach and you're saying, stop, no, you should not do that. It doesn't fit. I start sabbatical today, and I won't get the email, um, so just uh, it'll be forwarded to Michael. Um, but, but here's this dad who is, 
is doing this shameful, embarrassing thing, hiking up his tunic and running out to meet his son. But there's a reason he might be doing that. Um, There was a book written about 15 years ago called The Cross and the Prodigal, and the the author of that book says that in the Middle East, this guy's a Middle Eastern scholar, if, if a Jewish son were to do something like this, he were to go into the Gentile lands and squander his inheritance, he would be disowned. And not only disowned by his family, he would be disowned by the community. And they actually had a formal ceremony when someone like that would try to return to make sure that everybody else was taught a lesson, that you just don't do stuff like that. And they would go and they would break a pot in front of him, and then they would, as a village, they would all pronounce, you are now cut off from your people. The ceremony was called the the kazaza. And so here's this dad, and he sees his son coming back over the hill, and he knows that when this son meets the village, he's going to be rejected. So the dad says, I don't care how shameful it's got to look, I got to get to him first. Hikes up his tunic, runs out to him, and he greets his son not with a smashed pot, but with a kiss and a ring and a robe and a steak dinner and a loud pronouncement that this is my son. It's like he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. He's welcome. The father runs out and accepts the shame so that he can welcome his son who's been shameful and so his son can be received back into the community. So his son won't be shunned, but he'll be totally restored. So you see the father in the story bearing the shame so that he can forgive and welcome. The father takes the embarrassment takes the shame from the community. Probably people in the community saying, this father doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about right and wrong. Look at how he's rewarding his son for being terrible. Then you go back to the story of Jonah, and, and Jonah's hurling those kind of insults at God. God, you're not just. You welcome terrible sinners like the Ninevites. You're promiscuous with your love. This is totally irresponsible. I mean, what about the good guys like me? I mean, you forgive and welcome and offer your said to those people? God, this is not a good thing. And again and again throughout the Bible, God repeatedly tells us the story of his scandalous grace that makes self-righteous religious people nervous to even describe it and uncomfortable with a God who would welcome who he welcomes when they repent. God keeps telling us the story of a God who takes shame on himself so that the shameful can be welcomed and unashamed. And he tells that story most clearly on the cross. Romans 15.3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He bears reproach. He bears insults. He he bears the shame. He's the God who who hikes up his tunic and does the shameful thing so that the sons can be welcomed. That was the story told in the prodigal. That was the story told in Nineveh. But there's another son in this story, and he's the one who's invited, and we don't know what he does. Verse 25, it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Sat out in the hot sun and pouted. So you have this older 
son who is working, faithfully serving, thinks he's right with the father, comes in after his long day out in the field, and he hears the music, he hears the the beat of the drums, he even hears the dancing, so this is quite the party. The house is shaking, and he comes and says, what in the world is going on? And the servant says, your brother's home, and your dad threw him a party. And it burns him up. A party? For my brother. I never got a party. I never even got a goat. He gets a party. He squanders his inheritance, and he comes back, and everything's being spent on him. We're celebrating his restoration. We're celebrating the fact that he's back. And the son sits down, angry enough to die, says, I'm not going in there. And the father, again, has someone else that he's got to come on mission to. So the father comes out and takes initiative with him, too. He comes out, and he entreats him, which means he invites him to a treat. He welcomes him to come into the party, too. The the father gets up and goes to him. And maybe the father says something to him like, do you do well to be angry? Should I not pity my son? the one I invested all those years in? Am I not good to welcome him? Verse 29 says, But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not even my brother, your son, when he came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the dad comes out and calls the older brother to his joy. And the story doesn't resolve. We never, never find out if the older son says, You're right. What am I talking about? Point me to the stake. I'm going to come and celebrate that my brother's home. Or if he just stays on the porch and pouts, angry enough to die. Which tells us that there's still a decision to be made. There's there's a second prodigal in this story, and it's not just the one who squandered his dad's wealth. The other one who is still very much lost and very far from his father is the good son. The religious one. And the point here, and and Tim Keller unpacks this really well in his book, The Prodigal God. I'm borrowing some of his insights here. But the point here is that there are really two big ways that we can avoid relationship with God. One is the way that churches are good at pointing fingers at. um, The Ninevite way. The younger brother prodigal way. You you avoid relationship with God by numbing yourself with sin. By just enjoying the life of the party, enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, doing all the things that we normally say you shouldn't do. That you shouldn't get drunk, you shouldn't sleep around, it's absolutely true you shouldn't. And those things are one way to live a life without God in your life and to numb yourself of your great need for him. But the point of the story of Jonah and of the prodigal son is that there's a second way to avoid our need for God. And this is the good, clean church way. This is where you think you live relatively a relatively good life. You can compare yourself to people like the Ninevites and you're doing just fine. You're going to church, you're, you're doing some good, but you're self-righteous. You think you're okay on your own. You think that you're deserving something. You think that you deserve God's blessing 
because you've been okay, and you're not like those Ninevites. You're not like that prodigal. But if that's you, you're also missing the grace of God. Because just like you can numb yourself with sin, you can also numb yourself with religion and good works and convince yourself that you're okay without ever having to make that humble return, repenting and trusting in God for his mercy. There's a religious and an irreligious way to avoid God. Religion says, I'm good and valuable and accepted by God because of what I do. I work my way to salvation with the things that I do. And every major religion in the world teaches this, including a lot of what calls itself Christianity. Religion says, do good things to earn salvation. Do good stuff to be a good person and be saved. But the gospel says, I'm more sinful than I could ever imagine. So God took the initiative. He got up, he arose from his house, he came to save me, and I am saved freely by his grace on that cross, not by anything I do. And we avoid him with our religion, and we avoid him with our pleasure-seeking. But with religion, it's a way of convincing ourselves that we're drawing close to God, that we're somehow superior, that we're somehow more dignified, and that we're somehow deserving. And this is why religious people can be so miserable, angry enough to die. Because we can convince ourselves that by doing good, we have obligated God to bless us, and we look at our lives and we feel like he just hasn't blessed us enough, not enough for me, not not enough for what I've done. And the point of the parable is that both of these brothers, the sinner and the Pharisee, Jonah and the Ninevites, they're all in need of the grace and mercy of God. The wild younger brother, the Ninevites at the beginning of the story, they had lost sight of God's holiness and God's law and God's character. But then the good, clean brother in Jonah, they lost sight of their need for grace. They lost sight of the goodness and the mercy of God and how much they need his mercy. And all of them ended up missing the gospel altogether. We can avoid him by being religious or by being irreligious. But we have this tendency in our hearts, especially as as church-going folks, to believe that we are accepted by God because of our resume instead of by the goodness of the one who gives mercy. We're good at convincing ourselves we don't really need a savior. We can be religious and feel great about ourselves. But the point of the story of Jonah and the point of the story of the prodigal son is that we all need a savior. Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, clean and moral, unclean and immoral, we all need to turn from all of our bad works and also turn from all of our trust in any of our good works, throw them all in a pile, and trust in God and his mercy on the cross is the only way that we're loved and accepted by God. God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting relenting from disaster. He's a God who invites us to his joy, invites us to redemption, invites us to restoration, whether we've sinned by being standard sinful or whether we've sinned by being religious, we're invited to his grace. This story of Jonah tells us that he is a God of grace. The story of the prodigal tells us that he's a God who runs, a God who jumps fences, a God who bears shame, a God who throws parties for repentant sinners with music and dancing, and he makes religious people nervous with how scandalous and free his grace is. 
He's a God who's slow to anger, quick to love, and who is relentlessly and faithfully going after us as his children with his grace and his mercy. And even the storms, even the storms he sends after us are his grace. John Piper wrote a poem about Jonah, and at the end he says, There is a fierce and stormy grace with wind and waves and mangled face and sailors with condemning dice and demons waiting sacrifice and giant fish with slashing teeth and gasping acid graves beneath. Yet none of this is to destroy, but to restore the prophet's joy. And not his merely, but the throngs of Nineveh will sing their songs. God is a God who's eager to pour out his grace and love so that the nations will rejoice and be glad in in who he is. He's eager to forgive the worst of sinners who will repent and turn to him, and he's eager to forgive the most hypocritical of religious people who will repent and turn to him. He is radically, scandalously promiscuous with his grace, and we almost get nervous to describe him that way because how could he be that way? Because isn't he holy? Isn't he a good judge? Doesn't he make sure that every sin is paid for? Well, the Bible teaches that he certainly is holy. And he is a good judge, and he does make sure that every sin is paid for. And so the way that he can be both gracious and loving and free with his mercy and holy and just is the cross of Christ. The gospel is is the answer, just like it always is. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who will believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is a holy God who demands that sins be paid for. He is the God of the storm. And those Ninevites had a lot of judgment that they deserved, and and God just kind of passed by it, it seemed. That prodigal son had all kinds of judgment that he deserved, and it seemed like the father passed by it to welcome him. And it would be appalling for God to just let sin go. So he didn't let it go. He paid for it with his blood. He paid for it on the cross. Every bit of sin, every bit of shame, he took on himself infinite weight of sin against a holy God was all carried by Christ for anyone who would turn to him in faith, whether religious or irreligious, anyone who would just come to an end of ourselves and realize this is not about me. I can't carry this load. I can't do it right. I can't do it right in religion. I can't do it right in irreligion. I can't find my way to God on my own. Anyone who will come to the end of himself and turn to God will find that he has already come to us as the God who runs and jumps fences and welcomes the unwelcomable, pardons the unpardonable, stores that you're redeemable. God paid the price. And his Hesed love was so faithful and so relentless that he paid it with the life of his son. There was a sequel to the book of Jonah after all. 
It was the story of Jesus. In Jesus, we see who this story was really all about. He was the one who would perfectly obey his father. He was the one who would come to us on on mission. He was the one who would be swallowed up by death and vomited up by a grave that just couldn't digest him. And while he was here, he wept with the broken. He rejoiced with the forgiven. He accepted all of the unlovable who would turn to him. And he calls the self-righteous to see that we are just like our enemies and we're in need of that grace too. So Jonah, what will you do? Will you turn from your self-righteousness and just trust in Christ and join the party? Or will you sulk away your days just thinking that you could be a better God than God is? You could plan life better than he does. You're worthy of more than you're getting. You're envying the blessings of those undeserving people who are being blessed. We can either sulk away on the hill or we can enter into the joy of the Lord. And the message of the gospel is that there is plenty of room at the party for you. But you've got to meet the requirements. First requirement is you recognize that you're unworthy. Religious or irreligious, you don't deserve that party. It's all the grace of the Father. Which means you have to turn from self, turn from unbelief, and and, and stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop thinking that the story is all about you. But then believe in the almost unbelievable, scandalous grace of God that he would take sinners like us and send his son to die for them so that we wouldn't get the shunning we deserve, we wouldn't get the excommunication that we deserve, but we would get the welcome, the ring and the robe and the fatted calf and the party. Listen to the promise in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 26. He says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. So turn to Christ. Go back to him. Repent. And you will find nothing but a loving God with an open welcome and forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are in awe of your gospel. We're in awe of your wisdom, in awe of your plan that you are a just God, but also a God who can welcome the the unjust and pardon the unjust and call us just, call us forgiven. You are a a great and merciful God. And Lord, in light of that, we have to repent of, of the way that we pursue alternatives to your grace. We repent of our prodigal ways and our Ninevite ways the ways we numb ourselves with sin, the ways we live like you are not our God at all, the ways that we we live only for ourselves and for our own pleasures. We turn from that, recognizing that you are so much better and that there is joy in your presence. We also repent of our older brother and our Jonah ways, the ways we numb ourselves to our, our need for you with our religion, the ways we live like we don't have need at all, the ways that we cling to our dignity and cling to our pride rather than humbling ourselves and receiving the grace of the Lord. So Lord, we throw ourselves on you and we trust again in your cross and we're thankful for your pardon. 
We're thankful for the mercy that you showed us in Christ. We're thankful that when we return to you, we aren't your slaves, but we're your sons and daughters, and that you're singing over us with a, with a voice of loud joy, and that we can celebrate in your presence the fact that you paid it all and washed our sins away. We're in awe of your mercy and awe of your gospel. Uh, Lord, give us the, the gift of faith so that we might believe it, so we might enter into the celebration and might experience the joy of the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship him together for his grace.